You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Good morning. Um, we're going to be in Acts 7, 17 through 29. <coughs> okay. As the time drew near when God would fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. This king exploited our people and oppressed him, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, a beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as her own son. Then Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in both speech and action. One day, when Moses was 40, 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. So Moses came to the man's defense and avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they didn't. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man in the wrong pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us, he asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. Midian. There his two sons were born. Dear God, thank you for letting us all come together and worship you. Um, We pray for peace over people who are having a rough time in life right now. Um, We thank you for everyone and everyone's families, and we hope everyone gets better. Amen. Thank you, Trinity. Nice long passage for you. (laughs) You made it through that. Good job. Good job. Um, So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, settling into God's family, what it means to settle into the household of God. And part of that has to do with embracing our status as uh, children. So that's what we're going to be talking about. But um, I want to start off by asking just a couple of questions, and I'm expecting you guys to participate in this, okay? So I should say inviting you guys to participate uh, in this. So just by show of hands, and we've got to be careful here because some of you are with your parents or family members, so, um, but how many of you grew up in a family, like if you're just totally honest, you grew up in a family that was dysfunctional? Now, okay, so we have, uh, yeah, if, if your parents are here, just blink twice hard, okay, um, right, so, okay, so yeah, you, you kind of know what that uh, is like. Now, here's another follow-up question. So what are some of the features of a dysfunctional family? What would you guys say? <laughs> I had mentally prepared for all kinds of answers, uh, uh, okay, yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, I see, I see where you're going there, uh, Tim. Uh, anybody else? What are, what are other features of a dysfunctional family? Irritation, arguing, do not cooperate well, unforgiveness. 
Uh, who said ab uh, abuse, right? All kinds of abuse, verbal, physical abuse, neglect uh, can happen. Anybody else? Right, a general lack of valuing one another, like that's all part of a, of a dysfunctional family. Okay, so uh, here's another question, a follow-up question. So how many of you didn't really realize that you were growing up in a dysfunctional family until later on in life, and then you're like, man, what is all this baggage that I'm carrying around, and it's like spilling out everywhere. Anybody, anybody kind of in that boat? Okay, yeah, that, that is the story of a lot of people, right? So a lot of people come out of dysfunctional families, but I think what God wants to communicate to you today is he wants to invite you into a very different kind of situation. Through Jesus, he wants you to settle into a new kind of home, very different from the one that you came from. But for you to really settle in, right? So many of us have entered into that home, but maybe we're struggling to settle into that home. For, for us to really settle into the household of God, we're going to have to have God help us unlearn some things. We're going to have to have him teach us to trust him. And he's going to have to heal some of these wounds that we carry around. And maybe we're not even quite aware of all the wounds that we, that we have. And so I, I'm, I've been praying that God would do a work of inner healing, right? We've seen a lot of physical healing uh, in, in the book of Acts, and we've prayed for physical healing here. But, but I'm praying this morning that you would experience some inner healing um, from past wounds. Now, I think you're going to see how all of this ties together with this passage here in a minute. So we've been looking at the speech that Stephen is giving in response to some accusations that are laid before him by the Sanhedrin. And they're accusing him of uh, coming against the holy place, so the temple in Jerusalem, and against the customs of Moses, which we have said probably have to do with national identity markers, such as uh, circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping, this type of thing. And the reason why they're bringing this accusation against Stephen is because the message that he's delivering, right, the gospel message, right, declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of those things. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And then on top of that, horror of horrors for them, right, Jesus actually predicted that the temple would one day be destroyed. And it did within his generation, in 70 AD. It was destroyed. Now, one thing that we have noted and will continue to note as we go along is that Stephen's answer is interesting in that he does not really answer those charges directly. What he does instead is he puts the whole situation, including the charges, within the framework of God's saving action throughout history, the history of redemption, all culminating in the cross of Christ. And as he does this through the speech, he sort of points out two big things. One is he's reminding them, look, the children of Israel, our nation, has a very long history of rejecting God's rep representatives. So that's one thing that he points out. 
Another thing that he points out is that God is free, right? He's not confined to a location. He's not confined to your expectations of how he might deliver. Now, another thing, as we move along, you're going to begin to notice that this speech happens in these five movements that are sort of shaped around different characters within the history of redemption, at least three characters. So we looked at Abraham in the first movement. Stephen reminds them, hey, look, our nation began with God calling Abraham out of Mesopotamia, an idolatrous place, a dark place. And his children were sojourners. They didn't have a land. So he's reminding them about Abraham. And they're looking forward to this promise. And we're going to talk about that promise here in a minute. Then in the second movement, he talks about Joseph. And he reminds them that the patriarchs, right, our nation's founders, right, they were saved before they were saved out of Egypt. They were saved in Egypt. So an unexpected location by Joseph, an unexpected deliverer, pointing forward to a greater unexpected deliverer in Jesus Christ. Now we're moving into this third movement, which is about Moses. Now this is, this is the longest movement of the whole speech, and that makes sense given that one of the charges is, hey, you are coming against the customs of who? Mo oh, Moses? Let's talk about Moses, right? Is that, that's what Stephen says. And then remember the other uh, uh, accusation is about regarding what? The temple. And so he, uh, he gives a section to the movement to the temple. And then he talks that all climaxes is their present rejection of the Messiah. So, but we're in this third movement, right, about Moses. And it's, it's very, very long. Trinity read a long portion of it, but she didn't even read all of it, right? It, it, it breaks up into three parts, all organized, these 40-year segments of uh, Moses' life. We're not going to look at all three today. We're just going to look at the first two. We're going to cover 80 years today in like 30 minutes, okay? So we're just going to look at these first two. And when you look at those first two sections of Moses' life, Moses lived for 120 years. We're just looking at the first 80 years. We are introduced to two households. Right? There's the household of darkness, and then there's the household of light. So we're going to first talk about the household of darkness. Then we're going to talk about the household of light. And then we're going to close with thinking about obstacles that stand in the way, sometimes that sort of hinder even wanting to enter into the household of light. But even obstacles that sometimes make it difficult for us to sort of settle into the household of the Father and fully embrace all that that means for us, okay? So the first household we're going to talk about is the household of darkness. But before we really get into that, we need to understand how God originally established this household. So in the beginning, he created, God created a good, habitable world designed for human flourishing. So if you look in Genesis chapter 1, everything that is created is sort of uh, pointed at, the, at planet Earth in service of humanity flourishing, okay? Then at the climax uh, of his creation, he creates image bearers, right? Adam and Eve. 
And then he commissions them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion over it. So the original goal of the original household was to build this garden temple, right? Beginning in the garden, build this garden temple that would cover the entire earth, which would be a place where the people of God would flourish under the rule of a loving father. So that's the goal of the original household, okay? But then that plan was interrupted, right? So you could say advanced, and we're not going to get into that, but if you come tonight at book club, we'll talk about what, what could we mean by maybe it was advanced? But let's say for now it was interrupted by Satan who comes in in the form of what? Of a serpent. Okay? And then he pulls Adam and Eve away from this original plan. But then God, almost immediately, he gives a promise of an offspring to come who would crush the head of the serpent. So that's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That promise, right, originally given to Adam and Eve of this offspring to come, the seed of the woman to come, is reiterated, built on, in a promise given to Abraham. When God calls Abraham out of Mesopotamia, and he tells them, he says, you're going to be a father of many nations. You're going to have many, many offspring, right? They're going to uh, increase. They're going to be fruitful. They're going to multiply. And then they're going to fill the earth, right? And then you're going to have one offspring by which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then I'm going to establish for you a place where God's people dwell with one another, and they flourish under the good reign of the Messiah, right? And so, and then we learn that that place is going to one day encompass the whole earth in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Now, I bring all this up because we, at the beginning of our passage, we begin to see signs of movement toward the fulfillment of this promise, so look again with me in verse 17. There it says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied, where? In Egypt. Isn't that interesting? So God was beginning to fulfill his promise originally given to, it was a commissioning at first to Adam, then a promise to Abraham that's beginning to be fulfilled in Egypt. And so Egypt becomes a garden of sorts where the people of God are flourishing. But then another household arises. And a new figure slithers into the picture wearing a headdress with a rearing serpent in the front, right? A new pharaoh comes on the scene. So this is one of those 
garden remixes that we talk about sometimes. Let's read verse 17 again, but then read through 19. It says, but at the time of the promise, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Now this word exposed means to abandon. Right? And so in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, we understand that this, they're abandoning these children to the Nile. Right? I, just, I want you to remember that word exposed, understood in this way because it's going it's to come up later. All right, so I want to point out several things about the kingdom of, of uh, this household of darkness here. So who's the head of this household? Who, I heard two things. Somebody said Pharaoh, and then somebody said Satan. Correct. Right? Correct. Right? So the head of the household is Pharaoh. He's patterned after Satan. Okay? So Satan is kind of behind the house of darkness being expressed through Egypt. This is one iteration of the household of darkness. Even when in verse 19, did you notice? It said, he dealt shrewdly with our race. Okay, so that, that word, it's actually one word, but that word is talking about a type of wisdom. But it is a fallen wisdom used to deceive and take advantage of others. Who does that sound like? Satan. How, how is the serpent described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1? More crafty than any beast of the field. Right? Okay, so that is the head of this household. What are some of the features of his reign? Right. Injustice. Hatred. People are, are either seen as tools to use, so think about the, the Egyptians going into slavery, or threats to stamp out. We need to kill all the male children uh, by, of the Hebrews by abandoning them to the Nile, right? And the whole goal of this household is to get on top and to stay on top and if anybody gets in the way of you being on top, then you stamp them out. Right? And so it is an anti-God rule. It is an anti-human rule. Right? The, the whole point of it is to stop the seed of the woman, right? the promised offspring, to rise to power and establish his kingdom. Right, that's, that's the whole, it's to prevent that from happening, right? And, and you can't help but think of Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 and following, where the king of Israel, which is, you know, self-proclaimed king of Israel, Herod, what does he do? He has all the male children, two years and younger, killed around the area of Bethlehem. Why? Because there's this word of somebody rising up and having power 
right? And he's trying to stay on top. So you see this happening over and over and over again. So that, those are some of the features of this rule. What about the subjects? What are they like? Well, as is often the case, the subjects, right, of a kingdom or the children of a family, of a household, they start to take on the characteristics of the head. And it starts to get really dysfunctional. Right? So if you look at, in verse 24, right, you have an Egyptian who is oppressing and wronging, you could translate that, performing acts of injustice against an Israelite. But then if you go down to verse 26, same word used, another Israelite is wronging, performing acts of injustice justice against another Israelite, right? So the subjects are acting like the head who's acting like his head, right? Or the kids are acting like the dad who's acting like his dad. It reminds me of John chapter 8. Because remember, Stephen is talking to the Jewish leaders. Jesus prior in John chapter 8, talking to the Jewish leaders, he says to them, you guys say that your father is Abraham and that your father is God. Right? But if your father was Abraham, whose father was God, then you would receive me. So you're not acting like your father is God. Your father is the devil, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8, verse 44. Bold, bold words to say, right, by, by Jesus. So you see what's happening, right? The household of Egypt is a dysfunctional one, but it is just one expression of the kingdom of darkness under the rule of Satan. Jesus said of the, of the devil that he is the ruler of this world in John chapter 12, verse 31. Now think about, because I don't know about you guys, but I don't generally think about myself living in a world ruled by Satan. I mean, it's bad, right? But ruled by Satan? Well, maybe we've just gotten used to it. It's just all that we know. Just like those of us who have grown up in a dysfunctional family, we didn't know it was dysfunctional. But, but now God wants to take us from the kingdom of darkness and then bring us into the kingdom of light. So this is our second point. All throughout the history of redemption, God raises up leaders, deliverers, to bring his people back into the household of light. So he calls Abraham. Then he rise, you know, causes Joseph to rise up. And now we're on Moses. Right? What is this kingdom of light like? What is the ruler like? Well, the rulers are simultaneously rulers and deliverers. They are Lord, yeah, but also Savior. And they don't use 
serpent-like wisdom in order to take advantage of other people and deceive them. They use godly wisdom in order to bless other people. So if you, if you think about the story so far, you go back to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 talks about how Stephen, he's the one talking, right? He was full of wisdom. How does his wisdom take expression? He blesses widows. If you go to Acts chapter 7 verse 10, you talk about Joseph, right? He has this type of wisdom. How does he use that wisdom? He provides grain to the world in the midst of a famine. And now in the Moses story, in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Moses has wisdom, but he attains that wisdom in Egypt. That's kind of interesting. And, and we'll just set that aside for now. This all looks forward to Jesus, who is the embodiment of, of wisdom. So he's called the wisdom of God. Right? The wisdom of God speaks in Luke chapter 11, verse 29. Right? It's out of the treasure of Jesus that we learn about wisdom. Colossians 2, verse 3. But Jesus' wisdom is chiefly expressed where? At the cross which Paul says is foolishness to the world, but to those who receive it, it is the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians 1.24. Now this same wisdom, it's going gonna, it's gonna to play itself out in the story of Moses in this really surprising way. So if you look at verse 21, Moses is exposed. He is abandoned to the Nile River. But how is he abandoned there? He's put in a basket, which is also a figure of what? The ark. Oh, so exciting. <laughs> All right. he, he, he travels through the waters of judgment. Think about the baptism, Adrian. He, he travels through the waters of judgment. What's Moses' name mean? Do you guys remember? <laughs> Drawn from the water. He travels through the waters of judgment, and he is drawn up out of the water, which is a sign of resurrection. Then he takes his place in the household of who? Pharaoh. So he's exalted to a position of power where he learns wisdom. Okay? But then he doesn't use wisdom. He doesn't regard it as something to take advantage of. What does that sound like? Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Right? Instead, he leaves the treasures of Pharaoh's court behind Hebrews 11.23 and tries to deliver the people of God and eventually brings them through safely the waters of judgment in the Red Sea that then collapse over the serpent king 
Pharaoh. This is the wisdom of God. Now, who is Stephen talking to? The Jewish leaders, right? What is the what have the Jew, the Jewish leaders just done with Jesus? They've they've crucified him. Now now this, so this passing through the waters of judgment, so that you can rise up, use your power to have other people passing through the waters of judgment, right? That's the gospel according to Moses, right? And that's the wisdom of God. God used the very thing designed to kill the promised offspring to kill the serpent. And so the Jewish leaders don't know it, but by crucifying Jesus, they have taken their place in the story of fulfilling Genesis 3.15. If you think about the nails going into Jesus' heel, those are like the fangs of the serpent, but what the serpent doesn't know is that the blood of the Son of God is poison to him. And this is how the serpent is defeated. So the ruler of this kingdom is very different from the ruler of darkness. And what is his rule typified by? True wisdom, justice, where the people of God are loved and protected from oppression, where the goal, the goal is loving people through sacrifice. So throughout the history of redemption, right, God has been raising up these deliverers to take them out of the dysfunction of their world and bring them into the household of God, right? But there are obstacles. And even if you enter in, sometimes we bring our baggage in with us and there are obstacles in settling into that household and fully embracing all that it means to be a child of God. So that brings us to our third and final point. I want to talk about these obstacles. There are significant obstacles that stand in the way of us embracing our status as adopted children and really settling in. Now, when I think about this, I cannot help but think about my daughter, Josie. Seven years institutionalized, right? Brought into our family, right? And she is like two entire countries have said, she is legally yours, right? But she doesn't care what the countries say, right? Still in her heart, right? She has to settle in to this new family, Embrace this status, right? And there's obstacles that stand in the way. What are those obstacles? So I just want to read through verse 23 to verse 29 again. Make, make a couple little comments here and there. Talk about two obstacles. Show how it relates to the passage. Talk about how it relates to us. And then we'll be done. Verse 23. 
There it says, when he, so we're talking about Moses, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Now, when we use the word visit throughout the book of Luke and Acts, it is usually a reference to God's saving action. Verse 24, and seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So the word avenged means to make right. So he was wronged, and you can argue whether this was a good idea on the part of Moses or not, but, but he's trying to make things right from this wrong. He's trying to bring justice. And then verse 25 is critical. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Right? So just like Joseph, like do his brothers get his dream of them bowing down to him? They do not get that dream. They do not like that dream at all. Right? Does Jesus... When he comes around, he's making the claims that he makes. Do the Jewish leaders like his presentation? No, they do not, right? Same kind of thing is happening with Moses now. Verse 26, and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling. So Israelite to Israelite now. And tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Right? Wrong. Same word. Verse 24. Verse 27. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Right? Rejecting God's chosen deliverer. Verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses is trying to bring righteousness, he's trying to bring justice, he's trying to bring reconciliation into the dark household of Egypt, but there are obstacles that stand in the way of Israel being able to receive and embrace the deliverance that he is providing. What are those obstacles? Well, there's probably many, but one obstacle is, uh, me included, all of us included, Right, is that we have broken assessment tools. We assess God's deliverance, his saving action toward us, and I'm not just talking about the initial point of salvation, what he does throughout our lives. We assess it with a tool that has been misshapen by our experiences. And so we don't know if we can trust what God is doing. Right, so they can't, the Israelites cannot imagine a just ruler. They've just been under unjust rule for 40 years. Can you imagine that? I mean, we complain about this president or that president. It's never 40 years, <laughs> you know what I mean? 40 years of, under unjust rule. Do you think they're going to be a little suspicious about what Moses is bringing to the table? Or you think about my daughter Josie, seven years in an institution. You think Josie is ever going to be suspicious about trusting us? She's, she's getting there. She's learning, you know, and she's starting to trust more and more, but it's a process. We're the same way. 
broken assessment tools, right? Another thing that's going on is our, our little shift gear thing going on in our life. It's like stuck in survival. It's just stuck there. They're used to a world, right? The children of Israel, they're used to a world where you have to defend yourself, ward off wrong things, and use any means possible, right? You think about Josie, seven years in an institution, right? You, if, you, if you don't fend for yourself, you're not going to be taken care of. There's so many kids. There's so many kids there. And then when you start to feel afraid and like you're going to get in trouble, you, you might use survival techniques that are misshapen, right? So you might lie. You might try to manipulate the situation. But of course, we never do anything like that, right? right? We're, it, it's, it's the same thing. Like, we're just coming out of the kingdom of darkness, and we have these things that are broken, right? And, and so the point is this. The Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin, they're bringing their broken assessment tools. They're, they're bringing their survival techniques to the table as they are confronted by the gospel that tells them that they're no longer going to be on top. And it really bothers them. And see, what had happened was the Jewish leaders had created a baptized, sanctioned version of Egypt. Do we do that? Do we as Christians do that? And you might say in Jesus' name after it. You know, like, uh, it, but, but what, what is our goal? Is the goal to stay on top? Is that the goal? Or is the goal to not regard that as a thing to be grasped, but to let go of that, the treasures of Egypt, and then to become a servant of all. And then to use whatever you have to bless. So I think what God is saying in all of that is he's saying to the Jewish leaders, you've become like Egypt. But he's saying to us, you don't have to live like you're in Egypt anymore. You don't have to think of yourself as an orphan anymore. Right? You, you are the subject of a loving king who, guess what, has adopted you as his child. And when you embrace that, and you settle into that household, you can calm down. Man, we just, sometimes we tell Josie, all right, just say, just say calm down, calm down, because her eyes are going, beep, 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 like all these threats, I got to manage all this stuff, you know, where's the food, where's the, you know, like it just, you'll be taken care of, right? And then when, when she feels like, so she's not going to remember like the letter W, Right? If she doesn't feel like she's taken care of, right? Like, it's like, like whoo, calm down. Okay. Oh, there's other people. Oh, they have needs. Oh, now I'm free. 
to bless them. And that's what can happen in our hearts. But there's obstacles, aren't there, in our hearts. There's hindrances in our hearts. There's past wounds in our hearts that need healing, inner healing. And so I want to do something a little different this morning. It's not like we've never done anything like this before, but I want to ask maybe Jay, Carlton, Matt is here, Adam is here. Maybe one of you can decide to be in the back, but if you feel like, okay, that's me. I have all these wounds, and I know in my mind that I am a child of God, but I don't know if I'm settling into this house, and I don't know if I've let go of like always feeling like I have to fend, out, fend for myself. So as, as we sing and as you feel led, you can come to one of us and we'll just pray specifically for that, for your inner healing, that God would touch you and begin to heal some of those wounds. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that what you say about yourself and what you say about us is true in Jesus. And so, Lord, I, I just pray right now that you would do a work in our midst. Holy Spirit, come and minister to us each and every heart, God. I pray for a work in Jesus' name. Amen.